the Push Files, the audio archive for honors history students at Ballston Spa High School. For today's file, I'll be sharing a program hosted by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History as part of their Advanced Placement History Test Prep series. This program focuses on time period number five, covering 1844 to 1877. For a direct link to the presentation and source citations, please visit the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to A Push Test Prep. Happy Saturday, and thank you for spending your weekend with us. Um, it's nice to see you all again. I'm sorry I wasn't here last week, had a little cat emergency, but back in action and happy to be with you guys today. Um, we're just going to go over some tech stuff real quick. As always, if you want to ask a question, please only use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Um, we do recommend you keep things in full screen for the next hour, just so you can see Mrs. Z in her presentation at the same time. We are gonna keep the chat closed most of the time, just given the size of the class. When it's open, you can select whether you want your message to go to just panelists or whether you want them to go to all attendees as well. So you can use that using the little drop-down menu. And then as far as some Zoom norms, we're gonna keep your microphones off as well as your cameras for the whole class. My colleague Sasha is monitoring the chat um, and any links that Mrs. Z shares in her PowerPoints, Sasha's gonna drop those in the chat for, um, for you. If you could just keep your commentary appropriate, professional, focus on the topics, that would be awesome. And again, just put all your questions in the Q&A box. So take it away, Sarah. All right, thank you, Cassidy. Welcome everybody to, this is, gosh, we're, we only have a couple meetings left. Um, thanks for spending your Saturday with me and we're gonna get some good review here. Um, but I wanna start off with something that I love to start off with this quote as we get into our next period. And so this is a two for question here. Number one, you got to guess who said this? And then number two, when did they say it? So give me a estimated year. See if you can figure that out or, or at least what they said it in perhaps. So here it is. The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. Our children see this and learn to imitate it with the morals of the people. Their industry is also just destroyed. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Let's see, throw up a guess there. Who said this and bonus points if you know when or like approximately when. Let's see what we got here. Ooh, some guesses coming in. Oh, you guys are, look at you. I'm impressed. This one always stumps the adults. I see some of you have gotten it. I like to start off with this quote whenever I'm leading teachers. Very good guesses. I see the Grimke sisters in the 1830s. I see Thomas Jefferson. I see William Lloyd Garrison. Thomas Jefferson in the 17 somethings. Um, correct answer is those of you that said Thomas Jefferson, you are right. And he actually said this in notes on the state of Virginia. So this is the late 1700s. Uh, whenever I use this quote in class to start off period five, usually my students guess people like Frederick Douglass, um, the Grimke sisters, like some of you brought up you know, more people very closer to the Civil War. Um, I like to throw this quote at them, this, this little primary source nugget, 
just because it's a reminder of something that I really try to make sure that students understand. And that is that slavery was divisive from day one. And also that they all knew it. <laughs> they, they all knew it. This was not a surprise. This did not just come out of nowhere in Fort Sumter, right? This is something that had been dividing our country before we were even a country. And it's something that in the constitutional convention, they made deliberate choices to pump the football down the field, right? Missouri Compromise in 1820, another deliberate choice. We're gonna see a lot of dominoes falling between about 1848 and 1861 today. And, but everyone knew it was divisive. And, and so we wanna make sure we recognize that. So I like to just start off with this one, kudos to you that got it right out of the gate, I'm impressed. Um, and this is what I'm trying to just kind of make sure we understand that the system of slavery was always divisive. Period five is probably my favorite period, not going to lie. Um, I, I think it's fascinating to look at the years prior to the Civil War. And then I am a big time, um, not fan, it's not a fan really, but I'm, I'm fascinated by Reconstruction and what happens in those pivotal years and how it sets up everything that happens after. So. I love period five. I'm actually really excited about this. Um, I was just joking with Cassidy and Sasha that I'm gonna have to be careful here because I'm just gonna keep going. Um, is my screen not going? There we go. I'm gonna have to cut myself off. So let's start with, as we always do, period five, which we are focusing on today. We're gonna get into our content. We're gonna review major points and concepts. Here are the years. So as always, we wanna start off by saying, what do these years signify? Let's go 1844. And you might notice that that overlapped a tiny bit with period four. Period four went to 1848. Period five goes back just a few years. Um, and there's a reason for that. So let me see, throw it in the chat. Why 1844? Sounds like an arbitrary year. <laughs> Ooh, yes, a lib says something to do with Texas. Yep, good guess. It's not, it's, this is, but the annexation of Texas, there it is, Hector got it. With the annexation of Texas by Polk, um, we see the Mexican-American War. And really what we're gonna see with that is how that war ends and the territory that is gained is going to really be kind of a major spark taking us closer to those, that final decade where the dominoes really fall. Okay, 1877, what's the significance of that year? In fact, many college history classes divide US history at 1877. It's kind of the symbolic halfway point. Why is that? Does anybody know why? <gasps> Joseph, nice, and Palin got it. The Compromise of 1877, which Joseph said ends Reconstruction. That's it. Good. So we are taking you from roughly the Mexican-American War to the end of Reconstruction. So as our periods overlap a little, because this always confuses my students, they're like, wait, but I thought those years were there. Remember, we're going conceptually. So in period four, we're focusing up to about 1848 because we want to get in things like that Seneca Falls Convention, right? That goes conceptually with the reforms coming out of that second great awakening in the Jacksonian era. Period five is all about civil war and reconstruction. And so we're really going to start our conversation in 1844, really rewinding a little back to 1836 if we want to get technical talking about the Alamo a bit and the role that Texas is playing um, in, in that conflict and then taking you all the way to the end of reconstruction. I gotta put that in quotation marks because I want to make sure we all understand we ain't done in 1877, right? There's a lot left unfinished. 
that we're going to see will continue to affect us throughout the rest of U.S. history, even right now. So excellent. Let's get into it. Just a reminder, if you have not bookmarked this, what are you waiting for? There are amazing resources here, review videos, and I'm going to be pointing out just a few of the highlights of the goodies that are on there that relate to period five. So we are in period five and you've got the timeline you can click through. You've got documents you can practice with. Um, awesome. And I know they're pushing that out in the chat for you. Awesome resources there on the APUS history study guide. So 13% or so of the course, that is what the College Board tells your teachers to spend on period five. So it is about, you know, this is, this is where we are. My students are actually starting this in class Monday. They're starting, I'm gonna give them that Jefferson quote, don't tell them, don't tell them. Um, we're gonna start this on Monday. So, you know, you're probably close or maybe you're already in it, depending on when you started, right? Or you're getting there, or you're getting there. So it is a long time coming. And this is what I always say, this is the dominoes finally fall. The inevitability of the conflict that has been brewing again since before we were even a country, right? So you wanna think about what led up to the first shots of the civil war and then consider how the US was reconstructed and what was left undone, okay? We see three pivotal, important amendments coming into in reconstruction within a span of just a few years. Massive changes. Historian Eric Fonin calls it the second American revolution, right? That this is another revolution that we have completely remaking the constitution, completely changing our relationship with the government, what it means to be a citizen, um, who gets a voice, right? There's, there's a lot of promises in reconstruction, but as we're gonna see, there are a lot of mistakes made. There are a lot of, and, and I think what I always like to look at reconstruction is a reminder of how fragile democracy is. That democracy takes hard work. It is not easy and it is very easily lost. So we're gonna see that as we go through reconstruction. Okay, here's a little poll. Now, if you're like, wait, I haven't studied this yet. Um, hopefully some of these at least sound familiar to you. What would you say is the biggest step toward the Civil War? And to be fair, all of these are important steps towards the Civil War, right? This is one of those questions where there's not really one right answer. This would be a great LEQ um, where you have to pick one and argue that this is the turning point, right? That there's something that continuity change over time. Here's what happened before this event happens, changes everything. Let's see what we got here. And if you haven't gotten to it yet, just take a guess, it's okay. All right, they're coming in. All right, the people have spoken. You and I, I would probably agree with this, that the Compromise of 1850 and specifically that Fugitive Slave Act is gonna be a huge step, but also shout out to those who said Kansas, Nebraska. I feel like Kansas, Nebraska is a really big one as well. Um, yeah, so we're gonna go through all these events and we're gonna make sure you understand them and walk you through them. And let me close out our poll, there we go. Um, and like I said, they all play a role. It's not that they aren't a step. Every single thing you're seeing up there is a major step toward the Civil War. And we wanna recognize that, but you wanna start thinking, okay, which one is, again, the point of no return, right? Once this domino falls, they all go. That's a good way to kind of think about 1844 to um, 1860. So let's get into it. So the dominoes start to fall. So when we want to look at this, we really want to start off with where we begin this period, the Mexican-American War. And we want to think about how is this war related to slavery and expansion? 
So when we look at the Mexican-American War, we have to recognize the role of Texas. Shout out to any Texans out there in the room. Um, remember, Texas was first its own republic before it was a state. And so how does this happen? You got to go back and rewind a little bit. And remember, Mexico had just recently gotten its independence from Spain, right? So the province in Texas had a lot of Americans migrating in and bringing enslaved people with them. And now one of the first things Mexico did when they got independence was ban slavery, right? Because they knew, they recognized, that, was, that had been a big part of what the Spanish had done in that empire. And so this is a real part of the conflict between, because who's coming into Texas? They tend to be, again, Americans coming from the states neighboring by, which were all states that allowed slavery. So this is part of the root of the conflict that we're gonna see, okay? So we need to recognize that. We need to talk about, we talk about the Mexican-American War, um, before we get into that, I wanna make sure we talk about things like the spot resolutions, right? Abraham Lincoln um, giving this speech, saying, I wanna know the spot where blood was shed, right? Because there's this debate over where did it start? Did it start in Texas or did it start in Mexican territory, right? And so what I always also say about the Mexican-American War is that it is essentially a training ground for a lot of our future leaders in the Civil War, right? Ulysses S. Grant is, is fighting in the Mexican-American War. Jefferson Davis is in the Mexican-American War. Winfield Scott, we're seeing some of these names that are going to play a role in what comes next. And so that I think is an important thing to note as well. So when the United States does defeat Mexico and gets a ton of land, remember a big part of that war was wanting to annex Texas. The United States comes out of that war, not just with Texas, right? They get half of what Mexico was, including California, parts today of Arizona, New Mexico. Um, this is a huge territory. So now here comes the argument. Because remember up until this point, the Missouri Compromise had set the border right? The boundary of enslavement and freedom. And it was 3630, right? Well, now we're looking at this territory and we're going, uh-oh, good chunk of this land is above 3630. What are we going to do, right? Oh no, here we go again. We're in the same boat we were in 1820 when we're looking at Missouri. So coupled with the fact that, of course, gold is discovered in, in I almost said Carolina, whoops, in California in 1848, 1849. And so we've got a massive gold rush and people rushing into California. And now California quickly meets the requirements for statehood. So this is all sort of like rushed together. So this is what we're really looking at here. Um, now, what are we gonna do? Well, what we see, this is Henry Clay's last thing he does on his way out, on his way out, the Compromise of 1850, which I always say, no one was totally happy with all of it, right? This is very much a Frankenstein-y compromise where there's pieces, parts put in there to get enough support um, that everyone will agree. And so what we really need to know is the key parts of the Compromise of 1850 and how is this gonna be a divisive moment? So what we will see is California admitted as a free state. Huge victory, right, for those in the North who are afraid of the slave power taking over in, in, in Congress. Um, now, what's the trade-off? Oh, because there is one, right? And the trade-off is we're gonna see a stricter, much stricter Fugitive Slave Act, which there had been a Fugitive Slave Act already enacted in 1793. This one is going to be much stricter, essentially turning people in free states into essentially the police power, right? If anyone is, is even suspected, of being once enslaved, you got to turn them in with penalty of a pretty severe fine or jail time. And so this is going to be the moment where, remember we said a lot of Northerners up at this point have been able to look the other way 
with slavery and kind of go, well, you know, I might not like it, but um, if that's their thing, I guess that's their thing. This is going to really start to change attitudes of white Northerners um, who maybe were on the fence before, who maybe have been able to avoid this, this issue. They can't avoid it anymore. So this is a real pivotal moment where we're gonna really see that. The other thing we're gonna see is that human trafficking and kidnappings will pick up even more. And we know for sure that free people were captured and enslaved, okay? And how do we know that? Solomon Northup wrote his story, 12 Years a Slave, which is, there's a movie came out recently, a couple years ago, based on that, his story, his words. And, and if that happened to one person, you know what's happening to other people. And I can't think of anything more terrifying, right? That than being free and not being able to prove it and being pulled into this horrific system and no agents, no way to get out, right? It gives me chills thinking about it. So the other weird part of the Compromise of 1850, we're gonna see the slave trade, but not slavery was outlawed in Washington, DC. And this is, my students are always like, what? I'm like, I know, this is one of those weird give and takes. This is Henry Clay trying to make everybody happy. So he gets his name on this, right? And it's this great compromise that he does. Um, and they also kind of just decided not to mention slavery in the new territories, which today are New Mexico, um, parts of Arizona. So that's kind of, that, that was the best they could come up with. That was the best they could come up with. So this, I would say, is a really key point as we move towards, let's talk about this Fugitive Slave Act. Like I said, this is the one that's really gonna start to change some attitudes of people who have been previously able to avoid the peculiar institution. Um, we will see great piece of evidence to use in that, especially for, again, we're looking at the white people living in the North, especially the upper class, middle and upper class women are gonna be sort of awakened by Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, fictional novel. But this is the one that even Lincoln kind of said later on that, oh, this is the book that helped start the war, right? And so for a lot of white people living in the North who had been able to be removed from slavery and sort of choose to be removed, I think in a lot of ways, really started to make them realize the horrific nature of the system. Um, another important thing to take a look at here is one of my favorite speeches. Oh, Frederick Douglass. I mean, just first of all, what an amazing individual, right? The man can give a speech. And this is probably one of his best, I think here, let me pull this up, here we go. And I actually linked to this, um, which is a video of his descendants delivering his 4th of July speech. And I know they're pushing that out to you in the chat. Um, it's super cool. It still gives me chills. Let me go back to my, I'm on a different computer here. Oh dear, what have I done? It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a Saturday if I somehow screwed things up. Okay, hold on. Oh, oh. Can, you, can you exit full screen on that um, that middle tab? On the middle tab, exit full screen? Yeah, that's what I was saying. I, yep, yep, let me. have like an exit button. Oh, click to exit full screen. Ah, there we go. Nailed it. Thank you, Cassidy saves the day. All right, um, and I don't have time to show you that, but that would be a great thing to check out, especially if you're interested um, in, or you're just fascinated by Frederick Douglass. But this is a, a great primary source that I think really um, is another one that we tend to see used on the national exam. We mentioned Solomon Northup, 12 Years a Slave, which is his story. Um, now William Lloyd Garrison, we're gonna see, and The Liberator, the abolitionist newspaper that he's publishing. Um, and Garrison is ruffling feathers for sure. I mean, Garrison is ripping up copies of the constitution and basically arguing that it can't even be saved, right? And Frederick Douglass will take some issue with that and 
consistently think, no, we can save this. Uh, we need to fix it. Another one coming out of Akron, Ohio, not too far from where I am, Sojourner Truth gave her Ain't I a Woman speech, which is um, obviously a lot about enslavement and her particular story, but also kind of bringing in a little bit of today, we use the word intersectionality between um, the, the demand for equal rights for women as well, but a really just powerful speech that she gives there. So you can see that these are some of these, these ads. And I always have my students look at these and I say, look how vague these are, right? And, and this is one of the things that you, you could argue is leading to free people being accused. Cause again, it's your word against theirs, right? Six feet tall. I, there's a lot of people who are six feet tall. <laughs> and this is just a, just a reminder of the horrific nature of the system. And I wanna make sure we understand that, right? Because another thing we're gonna see during period five, and you'll see primary sources of um, enslavers saying things like, well, what I'm doing is better than how they treat the wage slaves in the North, right? Like in the factories, I mean, I, I give my people food and I give them, you don't do that, right? Apples and oranges, okay? Not to say that what's happening in Northern factories is peachy keen, because it's not. But we want to recognize that that argument is just not valid. This is a horrific system based in violence, and we can't emphasize that enough. We want to make sure we understand that. Okay. So, Kansas Nebraska Act got some votes. And so, let's break this down and talk a little bit about this. So, as we get into 1854, um, we get kind of a new guy on the scene, Stephen Douglas from Illinois. And Stephen Douglas um, is going to kind of wanting to be almost our next Henry Clay. In that, he will run for president and not win. Um, that is true. But he also sees an opportunity to capitalize on the desire for a railroad. And so he wants that railroad, that Transcontinental Railroad that we're already thinking about, to go through Chicago. And he wants that. So this is where he's going to push the idea of popular sovereignty, right? Whoever gets there first gets to decide. What could go wrong? Um, turns out a lot could go wrong because you have the people who feel very strongly in favor of slavery and the people who feel very strongly against slavery rushing to Kansas, trying to get there first, trying to establish the, the, uh, what you need to make a state. Um, what happens? We essentially have a civil war happening in Kansas for two years, 1854 to 1856, bloody Kansas. The other thing we need to recognize about Kansas Nebraska Act is it repeals. 3630. Okay, so that line of demarcation, that southern border of Missouri, that's been the the, the, the line that we've been using, um, that's gone now. And we'll see that'll even go a step further when we get to Dred Scott. So we have literally members of Congress beating each other up. Okay, <laughs> the caning of Charles Sumner in 1856 by Preston Brooks. I mean, and again, this is where I would call um, on Joanne Freeman's book, The Field of Blood is, is fabulous chapter all about what happens here and just the and that was not an isolated incident like people were threatening to kill each other on the on the house representatives floor i mean it was it was very intense and so dred scott versus sanford is another really important one to understand um when we talk about dred scott and we talk about how he's suing for his freedom this is really kind of a two-for-one punch to the gut for, um, for enslaved people, because what the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Taney ends up ruling is number one, they said, Dred Scott, you shouldn't even be in this courtroom because free or not, black people cannot be citizens in this country. You don't even have the right to sue. So that's a big ouch, okay? Number two, 
it essentially said the Missouri Compromise Line of 3630 was never constitutional to begin with. Whole time it was law, Tawny's court's like, shouldn't have been, right? Northern states essentially have to recognize the property rights of enslavers when they come into their state. So this is a huge kind of emboldening move for the slave owning states in the South. Um, and it's gonna be another one that's gonna make that argument in the Northern states um, that, oh my gosh, look at the slave power. And remember, there's another thing I wanna point out. We also, again, I know I talked about the Northern halo. We gotta be careful with that. The Northern states were not all against slavery, right? In fact, there were, there were plenty of people in my state, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, who were fine with slavery existing. What they didn't want was for it to spread, right? That's gonna be their argument. Um, there are though a growing number of people who are speaking out. We'll see the, the free soil party sounds like it's against slavery. It's really against slavery spreading, but we are starting to see um, more voices in favor of abolition. But I just wanna make sure we put that, that point there. Cause I think that's something that I never got taught really. I thought all Northern states were against slavery period the end. That is not true. Okay, that is just not true. And that's gonna complicate things when we get into the war. So the Lincoln Douglas debates are what will actually really kind of make Abraham, whoa, too many clicks, make Abraham Lincoln really come on the scene. Um, he was there before, remember I said spot resolutions way back then? And he loses, he loses. This is for the Senate seat in Illinois, which another thing that's always funny to point out is that remember, we couldn't vote for our senators yet. Why are they debating? Uh, for the brand new Republican party, they saw a benefit here in these debates because they could get their party out there. And remember Abraham Lincoln at this point is not talking about getting rid of slavery. He says, I hate it. I think it's a cancer. I don't think it should spread. But he, at this point, he's saying, I think where it is, it can stay where it is, but I don't want it to spread, right? And that's where he's contrasting with Stephen Douglas who is saying, well, whoever gets there first. So that's what's, and, and Lincoln loses that election. John Brown's raid is a biggie, right? This is a spark that really is gonna ignite the fire. Side note, I have not yet had time to watch this, but I believe it's on Showtime. There is a series called The Good Lord Bird. I did read the book, book, two thumbs up. It basically traces John Brown, who by the way is in Kansas during bloody Kansas, killing people, right? And traces what, right up to Harper's Ferry. And he's played by Ethan Hawke. Um, I believe David Diggs plays Frederick Douglass. So I've heard good things. I have not had a chance to see it, but that is uh, that was just released in August, I believe. So these are some of those dominoes that are taking us up to this point. Election of 1860. <sighs> Talk about divisive elections, friends. Um, this, here is the most divisive election in US history. Um, yeah, I'll say it. Because when you look at what happens here, we got four different candidates, don't we? We got four different candidates. And obviously you can see sectional tension tearing the country apart. And anytime we have more than two candidates, it's gonna be really hard for anyone to get that 50% plus of the popular vote for sure. Um, even sometimes the electoral vote, but Abraham Lincoln was able to get that electoral vote. You see that he gets 59%, um, but he does not get the popular vote. He gets more than anybody else, he gets a plurality. But once his election was certain, and as it, remember it took a while to count, right? You're like, tell me more, um, took a little while to count. Once it was certain, by the time we get into early December, South Carolina announced that they were seceding from the union. Now, what 
does that mean? By the way, this is just my pet peeve. It's not succeed. Try to be crazy. It's succeed. I know it's dumb. I get so fired up about it. I'm like, no one's succeeding here. Succeed, leaving. So this is where we have a lame duck president, right? What does lame duck mean? It means a president who is not going to be re-inaugurated. So James Buchanan usually goes down on most historians' worst president ever lists. You know why? Because he doesn't do much here. He does issue some statements saying, I don't believe secession is popular or possible, but he just kind of like hides it out. And just a reminder, because it usually, a lot, you know, we always say, well, what's he supposed to do, right? Well, I will remind you that, the, that this has come up before, hasn't it? South Carolina threatened to secede and the nullification crisis. You remember what Andrew Jackson's response was? He's like, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. And so is it possible to issue a stronger statement to try to prevent this from happening? Absolutely. But Buchanan's going to kind of be like, I always say he's like the, you know, the, the gif with Homer Simpson retreating into the bushes. That's Buchanan right now. He's like, right. He's just, he's just hiding this one out. Um, Cause he's like, yeah, I don't want to touch this. I'm out. I'm out. So Lincoln walks into an absolute mess, an absolute mess. And that is really where we are. Okay, um, when Lincoln takes office, we right after that, we'll see within weeks, we have the first shots fired on Fort Sumter. Um, four more states leave, so now it's a total of 11, right? They're drafting their own constitutions. They're issuing statements of secession, which I always have my students look at. And this is what we're gonna see. So now we get into the war years and all my military historians are like, yes, we can talk about battles. Um, a little bit, a little bit. What we really want to focus more on, as we do with any war, is cause and effect and general strategy, right? So I hate to break it to you, you're just not going to get a DBQ or an LEQ on battles. It's not going to happen. Is it fascinating? Yes. Um, Civilwar.org, wonderful website that I use a lot in class. Um, they've got historians. They have 360 tours of a lot of the battlefields. Super cool. So if you are out there and you're a military historian, check that one out. I highly recommend it. Um, but what we need to think about is advantages and disadvantages of both sides, general strategies, right? And what I always say is there is no reason why the United States doesn't win this war in five minutes, right? They outnumber the Confederacy two to one. Remember, where are all our railroads, right? Where are all our canals, everything. They're all connecting north to northwest. There's only one railroad going from east to west in the Confederacy. And guess what plan number one was? Bomb that railroad, right? But I think the other thing we need to recognize, and oh, the factory system is in the Northeast. So they're able to produce more. What we need to recognize though is again, it's like we did with the American Revolution. We don't want to count out the power of leadership. Seven out of eight military colleges in 1861 were in the Confederacy, right? What's the only one? in the Union, in the United States. Anybody know? It's still there. What's the only military college that was in the Union? West Point, nice Anna. Yep, one of my uh, students, my former A-pusher is gonna play soccer there next year. I'm super excited for her. So West Point, that's it. The rest are all in the Confederacy. So what we're gonna see is Lincoln is gonna be so frustrated with his leadership, okay? He's gonna go through general after general after general because they're gonna make mistakes and more mistakes. And then he brings another general back and he makes a mistake again, right? And Lincoln's like, mm. um, so with the consistent leadership of Lee and some of the Southern generals, they're able to do a lot with a little. And that's why this war takes four years, right? Another thing we wanna understand is that um, 
the North, the, I should say the United States, right? Let's call it what it was. The United States, the federal government, the federal was divided. There's, there's a lot of people, the, the, the copperheads, right? The Democrats in places like Ohio that were like, you know, a lot of them, I'm kind of fine with them leaving. Why should we fight about this, right? We have a lot of racial tension in cities like New York where you see the New York City draft rents, where, where there's a riots and lynching and murdering of free black people because people are upset that they have to go fight in this war, that they can't hire a substitute for $300 to get out of it, right? So it's not the first nor the last time we're going to hear a war be called a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. There's a lot of tension happening in, in the Union states, and Lincoln's having a hard time dealing with that. I mean, he has to basically put Maryland and the city of Baltimore under martial law, right? Because Maryland falls, that's, pro that's a problem, because now D.C. would be surrounded. So you want to think about that. I put the Trent Affair is kind of an important one, I think, to know, because this is going to be the card the Confederacy is going to play. They're going to, and I think they overplay their hand. Um, the Confederacy is going to overestimate the willingness of England to jump in on their side. And it never happens. Um, and it never happens. And so that Trent affair is a good example of how they were, they were trying. Yeah, they were absolutely trying to get an alliance because we know how that story ends, right? You have foreign alliance like France. We saw how that ended the American Revolution. So when we talk about the war, think about how it affected people. Think about how it affected soldiers and civilians. I would think about the role of women in this, in this war, um, the style of fighting is exceptionally brutal. And this is why more Americans die in this war than in any war in US history. And it's because both sides were American, right? We lose 600,000 plus in this war. It's 60% it's, um, of the war is fought in the state of Virginia. I always say whenever I'm driving through Virginia, it's like every other exit is a brown historical sign, like exit here for this, exit here. My family's like, no, keep going. Like, but right, right here, let's look. <laughs> um, Soldiers' lives, medicine changes during the war, technology changes in the war. I, and it makes me sad almost that we're just a little farther behind in the medicine, the technology. And also because of the bullets, the mini ball, they, when they're hitting people's bones, these bullets were not totally aerodynamic and they were shattering bones. And so we're gonna see um, the real kind of demand for changing some of the ways we do things with medicine um, and then race relations too. So how is the US able to win? We wanna recognize, first of all, that black people play a huge role in the battlefield and off the battlefield in, in turning the tide of the war and the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, by Lincoln is not what frees all the enslaved people. We wanna make sure you understand that, but it definitely changes the tide of the war and makes it about officially ending slavery, right? Because in the beginning, Lincoln was still tiptoeing a bit in his first inaugural address. I always pull that up for my students. You see, if you could, says, if I could save the union and free all the slaves, I'll do it. But then his follow-up is, if I can save the union and free none of them, I'll do it. He, he wanted to save the union. I really think it's, um, an historian John Stouffer does a nice job explaining this, um, but it's Frederick Douglass that makes Lincoln the Lincoln we know, that pushes him consistently and shows him that the Emancipation Proclamation is going to keep England out of this. It's not just a, the right thing to do, it's a military move, right? And so eventually it gets to that point and you see Lincoln become the Lincoln that we know as the war goes on. So how is the US able to win here? Um, ultimately, I think what we're gonna see is it's total war in the South. I mean, you could use a good example of that would be Sherman's March to the Sea, right? 60, uh, there's a 60 mile wide path of destruction and it is total war. I mean, they're setting fire to the crops, they're killing the livestock, they're going in, they're stealing their jewelry, right? Like when we, this is, we talk about why is there so much bitterness after the war? 
well, there it is, right? This is gonna be hard to put together, but it's a reminder that as William Sherman said, war is hell. Like we don't wanna go into this lightly, right? And we wanna recognize the prisons at Andersonville um, are, is another great example. And just prisoners of war being mistreated or just not having the ability to even feed them. I mean, there's a lot of things happening here that are gonna make it hard to put the country back together again. So let's, I just kind of hit on this, but just making sure we understand what the Emancipation Proclamation did and what it didn't do. So remember, this is in the middle of the war. There are still some border states. There are still some states that allow slavery but haven't walked out of the Union. And Lincoln is always afraid he's gonna lose them, especially Maryland. And that's why when Lee invades Maryland and Antietam happens, Lincoln's mad. He's like, oh, I gotta go for the jugular here. He's fired up. Um, because if he loses Maryland, Washington, D.C. is surrounded. So those border states, this is why, friends, he does not push for that 13th Amendment until the war is almost over, right? Until it's 1865, the South is in ruins. Atlanta and Savannah are burning. Um, there's no chance that those border states are going to jump ship at that point. And that's when he pushes for the 13th Amendment. So we also want to think about the role that enslaved people played, um, both in the South and fighting in Union troops as well, to try to um, stop this from happening and try to push for more freedom. And so we do get that 13th Amendment passed by Congress in 1865, ratified later that year. And we want to recognize that Lincoln had his plan for Reconstruction, and it was relatively lenient. Right? It was relatively lenient. And when we look at the great things that Lincoln says, when, when we look at the Gettysburg Address, now he's the Lincoln you know, right? We look at Lincoln's first inaugural, my students are always a little surprised. They're like, wait, what? Wait, is that Lincoln? I'm like, yes, that's Lincoln, right? He's very much appeasing. He's very much still tiptoeing. Um, there's no more tiptoeing in the Gettysburg Address. There's no more tiptoeing in his second inaugural. Um, he's all in now, right? And, but his reconstruction plan is gonna be much more lenient. It's 10% of eligible voters taken oath. It's, um, you know, it's, it's more focused on rebuilding, coming together. He didn't want massive treason trials and, and all of that. Um, and a significant chunk of his party wanted to see some of that. And that's where we're gonna see the radical Republicans pass the Wade Davis bill, which is a 50% have to take an oath. It's a harsher oath. There's a lot more there. Lincoln actually pocket vetoes that he goes against his own party. Not afraid to do that. He did that there. Um, but what ends up happening, as you know, is because Lincoln is assassinated, what's gonna end up happening? First of all, we get probably the worst person to follow Lincoln in this moment ever, and that is Andrew Johnson. But second, we're gonna see the radical Republican plan in Congress is gonna be the one that's gonna be a lot closer to. And whereas Lincoln did not want those states to feel like occupied territories with the Military Reconstruction Act of 1867, they will, they will. So here's where we get into reconstruction. Oh, I feel like we need like another hour for this. This is my, I love looking at reconstruction. It's just a fascinating period of hope, success, and then ultimately some failures and some mistakes and some lessons and what not to do. Um, so I would point you to the period five timeline. There's fabulous resources there, including video lectures by historian Eric Foder, who, shout out, um, when I got my award in New York City, he actually gave uh, the speech and I got to like meet him and I was like, fangirling so hard. It's really sad. That's what I fan. I fangirl to historians. Um, so he's got some amazing stuff and just wrote a new book as well on the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, which um, 
two thumbs up for Mrs. M. Nick. Reconstruction was truly a revolution. So the narrative that I always was told of Reconstruction was it was a failure, right? Fail, wrong. I really caution against that, that we need to not look at this as a failure. What we need to look at this is a revolution that fell apart. All right. And it can't, how do you call something that has three really important amendments, including the 14th, which I think is one of the most important amendments we have, a failure? There's some tremendous things happening there. Look at what, look at what these cartoons. So in a short answer question, perhaps at a DBQ, even at a stimulus-based multiple choice, you might get one of these. You might get one of these. And you want to make sure you can contextualize, you can see what's happening here. Always look at the date. Always look at the date. So this is 1867. This is just a couple of years after the Civil War. Um, let's take a look at this Harper's Weekly one on the left. What do you notice about the people in line? Take a good close look and just throw some things in the chat for me. What do you notice about the people that are in line there? Go to the chat. Take a look at what they're doing, wearing, facial expressions. So they're all African-American, yep. Somebody noticed the military uniform of the guy in the third back. Mm -hmm. All people of color. Yep. Yeah, they all look confident. That's a good observation. The heads are up, right? Heads are up. They've got guy, the second guy's got a little bit of a smile. Fairly well-dressed. Yep, the guy in the front, maybe not as much. And I think that's trying to show a little bit of the diversity there um, in the economic backgrounds. But, and they're all going to vote, yes. And how do we know that? If you actually look at the title, do you see it? The first vote. So always, whenever you get a cartoon, whenever you get a cartoon or an image, look, don't, my students always forget. I go, look at the caption, look at the year, look at the title. Those are clues. Those are big parts of the story. Excellent. So yeah, I see, I see people voting. Um, this is a hopeful scene, right? And this is where there's a, there is a tremendous amount of hope when the Civil War ends um, for Black Americans that, oh my gosh, right? We're gonna, it's our time. We're gonna be free. We're gonna be part of society. Lincoln, of course, had really pushed for the Freedmen's Bureau, which is gonna set up groups coming into the South to build roads and hospitals and set up schools and educate people because of course they weren't allowed to be educated before, not that they didn't want to. They weren't allowed to be educated before. Um, let's take a look at this one on the right. We've got a Courier and Ives here and it is 1872. And you can see the title and I'm using their words because these are not words we use today, but as a primary source, we wanna analyze that. The first colored Senator and representatives in the 41st and 42nd Congress of the United States. So this is, I mean, how do you call reconstruction a failure? We're talking about a system of enslavement to a few years later, formerly enslaved people sitting in Congress. Like that to me is amazing. There, there's a lot of inspiration happening here. But why didn't it stay this way? That's what we want to think about. And part of it is because um, Andrew Johnson is not Abraham Lincoln. Like, like I said, probably not a worse person for this moment. Um, Johnson was chosen by Lincoln in his second term, almost as kind of an appeasement measure. He's a Democrat from Tennessee, which was a state that seceded, but he didn't follow a state. So really, the Northern states didn't trust him because he was a Democrat from Tennessee. The Southern states didn't trust him because he didn't follow a state. So pretty much everybody hated Andrew Johnson. 
Um, and a reminder that our vice presidents are never more than one heartbeat away from being the president, right? And I think that's something we see that this is just not the right guy for this moment. Um, first of all, he's pretty racist. That's a problem. So he's going to grant amnesty to any former Confederates to just kind of ask him nicely. Um, he's going to allow black codes to start being enacted and not really do anything about that. He'll veto a bill to expand the Freedmen's Bureau. The radical Republicans are like, no, nah, you did not just do that. And so radical Republicans, especially Thaddeus Stevens and Andrew Johnson are just gonna mm, mm, butt heads and clash. And this is really what leads to his impeachment. So he is our first president impeached. And as you know, impeachment does not mean kick it out, right? Impeachment means he is put on trial. He is impeached for violating the Tenure of Office Act, which means he fired a member of the cabinet without a two thirds vote in the Senate, right? Today we look at that and we're like, really, that was it? Yes, um, he violated a law, true. Um, and I think really the, his impeachment is more about the bitterness of the situation, for sure. So he's not removed, it's actually a pretty close vote, but he's, he's not doing anything to help with civil rights. And so here's where we get Ulysses S. Grant coming in and I feel like Grant is the next one we need a musical for, okay? Not just because uh, we have another book on him, but I do feel like the story I always got with Grant that I was taught was Grant was an alcoholic and everything fell apart under his watch, okay? That is not the full story. Did Grant struggle with alcohol abuse? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, he struggled greatly with that. And, and I think when you look at the whys of that, he saw some pretty horrific things on the battlefield. Um, and this is again, before we really have diagnoses like a PTSD or anything like that. Um, he's certainly not alone in that matter. Did things fall apart on his watch? Yes. Was it all his fault? No. And I think we need to give Grant a little credit for really trying to stop this. So he does order troops to break up the clan as the clan starts growing. He says another series of force acts. He really does make an effort here. But the panic of 1872 happens. And anytime there's an economic recession, and, and I think we're seeing this even now, people turn inward, right? They get nervous about their job, their home, their family. They don't want to worry about other people. And especially here you go, Reconstruction's been happening now for years. This is when Northerners start to get apathetic and, and start to say, we're done, right? I mean, what else do you need? We gave you three amendments, right? You're done, you're not voting, that's, that's on you. Which we look at the situation, we're like, wait, is that on them? When the Ku Klux Klan and other paramilitary groups are running around terrorizing people and threatening to murder their family if they vote? No, that's not on them. But this is the attitude we're gonna see from people in many Northern states that, I mean, we're done. So what happens? Oh, you guys, midterm elections are so important to understand. No one gives them any credit. I think the midterm election of 1874 is one of the most important ones because what happened here is because of the series of voter intimidation, the Democrats are able to flip seats in first local and state elections and now federal elections. And they win the midterms, they take Congress. And so what ends up happening then, it doesn't matter how much Grant is gonna try because I have a great primary source where Grant is venting his frustrations. He goes, look, I, I want to fix this, but I can't because Congress controls the money. And they were just shooting him down. He'd be like, I need to send troops. And they're like, no, you don't, right? Last two, last two years of his administration, he can't, he was literally quite powerless um, to stop it within the normal bounds of his power. So the election of 1876 is really where we end here. And I know I want to save some time for questions, but when we look at this image, wow, there's a lot happening in this image. 
right? And again, let's look at the caption, go down there. What do you see? October 21st, 1876, caption, of course he wants to vote the democratic ticket. So I always tell my students to see, what do you see? What do you notice? And what do you wonder? And we do that whenever we look at these cartoons because I see a lot. Wow, there's just, there's a lot going on here. I would look at, first of all, facial expressions of the people in that room and of the people standing in the doorway of the people being threatened, right? Look what's outside the door, look what's happening there. We talk about voter intimidation and voter suppression, my friends. These conversations that we're even having today are not the first time we've had these conversations and we need to recognize that. And so what's happening in the election of 1876 is arguably this is an election where there is a significant amount of voter intimidation and voter suppression. And what ends up happening is Rutherford Hayes, Ohio boy, got to give him that some love there. And Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, um, the election is very, very close. And there were three states that were reporting different returns, right? And, and I believe, oh, I believe they were Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. It seems to be Florida, isn't it? When we have disputed returns. So what we end up getting is the compromise of 1877. So this is another election where the guy who got the most votes, person I should say, not always a guy, who got the most votes does not get to be the president. And it's because they worked out a deal. What's the deal? What's the deal? The deal is basically the Democrats said, look, okay, they wanted to play the long game here. They said, we'll take your Republican president if you withdraw the remaining federal troops from the South. And there were a few other parts of the deal too, appointing conservative Southern to the post, postmaster general uh, cabinet position. There were other pieces, parts, but the biggie was, we want the rest of the troops out of the South. Okay, now I already talked to you about what had happened in state and local governments, right? We know that um, in the midterm elections, how now the Democrats control the federal positions in those states. Folks, without those troops on the ground and with what's happened politically, this is why we have these three amendments and they are not gonna be followed. They're not for a long time, for a long time. And we're also not gonna see a president willing to touch this with a 10 foot pole for a long time either. This is to me the tragedy of reconstruction. There's so much hope and so much good and so much potential, but watching it fall apart. And I think it's a good lesson to us as to how Fragile democracy is how you have to work at it, right? How you can't take your eye off the ball just because you're tired, just because you're, you know, this is hard work. And I think there's just so many lessons to be learned with reconstruction. So I know I went a little over my time, but um, what questions do you have on period five? All right, let's get into it. Feel free to put some more in the Q&A, you guys. Um, but we've got a few good ones here. Asha was wondering, didn't Lincoln own slaves? Um, how did this impact his views on slavery and emancipation? Did Lincoln own slaves? Honestly, I don't know that. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I really don't. I, okay. I have not heard that Lincoln owned slaves, no. I haven't either, but I was like, yeah. wow. <laughs> um, Sophia was wondering, um, and I didn't hear you say this either, but um, she was wondering what the Richmond campaign and the Anaconda plan were. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was on a slide and I really didn't talk about it. Um, so the Richmond campaign, so for the, the Union, right, they need to capture Richmond. Richmond was the capital for the Confederacy. So this is why I did mention so much of the fighting is in Virginia. Um, this is why 
so much of the fighting is in Virginia. They're trying to take Richmond. And again, you would think, how hard could this be, right? Turns out, pretty hard. And this is, again, one of, they don't take Richmond until the very end of the war. It takes a long time to take Richmond. And it's an, another testament to the struggles Lincoln has with his leadership. Um, and then second part of that question was the Anaconda campaign? Mm -hmm. Yes, so Anaconda campaign, um, that is the campaign that is really like um, the idea of, did I have a map on that? I can't remember, I don't think I did. But sometimes you'll see it portrayed in a political cartoon with a snake. So what the union strategy was, what they said, well, here's what we're gonna do. Here's how we win the Civil War. We take Richmond, then we set up our ships all around the Confederacy, block them from getting any imports or exports. Because remember, those 11 states relied heavily on bringing in imports for food and manufactured goods. And so they're like, well, if we can cut that off, that's going to help. And then the other part of that was taking the Mississippi River. So that's where you really see the snake kind of curl up. Uh, I'm, I'm like drawing like you can see it. But if you look at a map, they set up their ships there and the goal was trying to take the Mississippi. So another big push, and this is where we'll see Grant and like Shiloh and Vicksburg is trying to take control of the Mississippi River. Because then what you do is you cut off Texas and Arkansas from the rest of the Confederacy. So it's a little bit of a divide and conquer method they were going for. Got it. Cool, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, here's an interesting one. What impact did Manifest Destiny have on the debate about slavery? Ooh, kind of a lot, yes. Um, so especially again, I would go back almost to the Texas um, and Mexican-American War when we're going to see, especially a lot of the Americans creeping into Texas in the beginning saying, well, this is our God-given right, right? And we should bring our property with us. and um, that is going to be a big push. And this is why I remember we said 3630 was the line up to that point. So they felt quite emboldened by that and said, well, yeah, this is totally legal and totally legit. And so that was a big push. And that's why we'll see people like Henry David Thoreau refuse to pay his poll tax in Massachusetts because he says, look, that money's going to fund this war and it's about slavery and I'm not doing it. He gets thrown in jail and rights on civil disobedience. And so you can kind of see how even some of the transcendentalist movement we talked about last week um, affects some of the things that are happening today. But yeah, and it definitely emboldened a lot of people. Got it, cool. Um, how, if at all, did the government aid the Confederate states after the Civil War in order to gain unity? Good, good question. So I would say that um, at least in the beginning and while Lincoln is alive, but even in the initial part of Johnson's administration, that Freedmen's Bureau, is going to be federally funded. It's going to be something that Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, the one who had gotten beaten by the cane, he's still around. He's gonna be pushing for that. Um, and the whole idea was, was rebuilding, right? And, but when it starts to run out of, you gotta remember as the years go on, people get tired. People get tired of paying for things. People get tired of doing things. And then remember I said, Andrew Johnson is the worst guy for this moment. He vetoes a Civil Rights Act. He vetoes a bill that would have expanded the Freedmen's Bureau and it just starts running out of money. And so that's one of the things that kind of makes it all fizzle out and fall apart. Gotcha. Um, did the Confederacy capture black Union soldiers to be slaves during the war or were they killed slashed imprisoned? They could. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have the numbers on that, but yet most, there were statements issued that any person fighting any, well, they, they would just be killed. Um, they, they did not have to play by the rules and, you know, put them in prisoner of war camps. They said, well, we will just kill you because their attitude was you're an enslaved person. You're not free. We will just murder you essentially. But yeah, but um, about, I believe it was about 10% of the Union Army at the end of the war was made up of black soldiers. So they play a huge role. I know the movie Glory, 
kind of touches upon this. It's still, some of it is made up, but you do see the battle at Fort Wagner in South Carolina um, as being one of those. And I always, it always kind of gives me chills. That battle is happening almost at the exact same time that the New York City draft riots are happening. So there's still, it's just a reminder that I think, again, the narrative of the Civil War tends to be all Northerners were against slavery. And, you know, that's, that's not true. That's not true. And that was one of the things of why it made it so difficult for Lincoln to pull everyone together, um, because he had that struggle tearing the country apart. Gotcha. Um, it's an interesting one. Could Reconstruction have ever been successful? If so, what changes could have been made to make it more impactful? Ooh, yeah, I hate to, I hate to go down the road of what if, because um, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. But um, I would say what makes it not successful is we see people lose interest and people lose the commitment to upholding the ideals that they had written. Um, whether they were Republicans in the Senate or House who start to lose interest. That, that panic, that recession is key because that really takes a lot of your, your average Americans um, that are in Northern and Western states. And they're just gonna say, well, we've been doing this for eight years, right? Seven, eight years, like we're done, you know? Um, I think it's a lot of people thinking things were fine and the opposition smelling that and noticing that and pouncing. Um, they were very well organized. And in some ways they were backed up by the Democratic Party. They're actually paramilitary groups supported by the Democratic Party that had real concerted efforts to flip states. So yeah, I think it's just the apathy, the, the attitude that our work here is done, right? And our, in a democracy, our work is never done. Like it is, you have to work hard at it. You have to participate um, often. And that's to me, the biggest lesson of reconstruction. Got it, awesome. Um, I think we probably have time for one more. Um, what did foreign nations think about US expansion, the Civil War, et cetera, during this time? Oh gosh, um, I mean, we know that, that England was entertaining the idea of helping the Confederacy. And we know that through that Trent affair when one of the ships was kind of like captured and like they got busted. Um, but they never quite do it. Cause you have to remember that England had already outlawed slavery. So, and that was one of the things, and I believe it's John Stouffer that talks about in his book, Giants, Parallel Lives of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And he talks about it saying, where Douglass is basically goes to Lincoln and says, look, if this is a war about cotton and money, they might jump in, right? Because there's, there's an advantage to England having labor-free cotton in their textiles. But if this is a war about slavery, they're not. And, and really kind of pushing him to issue that. Awesome. Well, it is 12.59, so I really appreciate I cannot believe that we're ending on time. I know that was a hot, hot topic today. Yep. Do you have any other closing thoughts for us? No, I don't think so. Um, thanks for, yeah, thanks for spending your Saturday with me. Hopefully this helped a little bit with the big picture stuff. And we've got period six next week, and I believe that's our last one. I can't oh. believe it. <laughs> time ah, fun. so fast. So hopefully everybody, um, yeah, they, they pushed out that little video. It'll give you a little preview of where we're going. Um, period six has a lot of changes in it. There's a ton of stuff. So um, we'll go through as much as we can. Big changes in the cities, big changes in the West. We'll talk about indigenous people. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it all. So hope to see you all next week. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. Have a good all weekend. Right. Thank Bye. you.